HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show was sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, folks. Yes, it is Monday. It is 12.02, admittedly. And this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Hey, it's after Labor Day. I'm back. I took a few weeks off uh, to rest, recharge, and regroup. Um, I'm kind of excited about some of the shows I have coming up. I've got a lot of authors coming on. I've got some, I want to do a long series on the dairy industry this fall. So stay tuned for that. Um, this is an industry that is close to collapse in this country. It's got lots of problems. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, pushback about the long uh, accepted as conventional wisdom that a glass of milk a day was an absolutely imperative uh, thing to have if you were a child and certainly even as an adult, unless you were lactose intolerant. Well, anyway, there's a lot to talk about and unpack about the dairy industry. And we're going to be doing that later on in the season. Um, I've been up in New England all summer and it's a really nice area to visit. If you haven't, uh, Rhode Island especially, is very lovely. Um, and the uh, farming situation up there has been burgeoning rapidly. It's uh, kind of amazing. As you uncover a rock or two in Rhode Island, you find out that um, that farming is really one of the mainstays of the state economy. And I think that's true in, in uh, an increasing number of states that are going back to those traditional um, industries, as it were, uh, in, in, a, in a very different model than has been and has been encouraged. And because we're talking about farming now, we're going to ha- be having a guest on today who was running a really interesting Facebook page called the Food and Farm Discussion Lab. And this uh, this page had over 6,000 people participating. And it was a really interesting forum to watch um, because it combined uh, both people who are scientists, not both, but included scientists, included farmers, included agronomists, agricultural experts of every stripe, and then just ordinary laymen like myself um, who were interested in the industry and interested in the um, in the development of the industry and, and where it's going next. So our guest, Mark Brazo, was the fo- moderator and the developer of this forum, and he'll be with us in just a minute. But before that happens, we're going to have a quick sponsor drop. Um, I think my sponsor today is Bob's Red Mill, and I just want to say that Bob's Red Mill plays a large role in my culinary life right now. <laughs> I make a lot of stuff with those products, and I hope you will, too. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Mark Brazo. We'll talk about the state of farming in the United States today and beyond. Stay tuned. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company, but the people who built it. 
I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Today is September 11th, uh, a day that will remain in infamy and a day that changed our country forever, as far as I'm concerned. And a good day to talk about the bedrock of uh, America, and that's our farming community. So to do that, we have Mark Brazo, who writes on food, politics, sustainable agriculture, and whole food nutrition at the Food and Farm Discussion Lab. And that's a separate website from the Facebook page, just so you know. Um, Mark grew up working on farms in Massachusetts, so he's a New Englander. I like that. He's a political and union organizer. Uh, He was a political and union organizer during his 20s, obviously a rabble rouser, and a chef through most of his 30s. And he now has a restaurant and works for a nonprofit on corner store issues, which we're going to ask him about in a second, uh, while teaching cooking and nutrition in low-income communities. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Katie. It's great to be with you. Um, What does corner store issues mean? Uh, uh, One quick Correction, that was a, a, a project I worked on with the Hartford Food System for a little while when I lived in Hartford a couple years back. Ah. Um, and what we did was outreach to the little bodegas and corner stores to um, in low-income neighborhoods to try to help them figure out how to stock and sell more fresh I see. Fruits and vegetables, mostly. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay, now I understand. Um, so tell us about the Food and Farm Discussion Lab. I, I found that just a fascinating forum. And this, I'm talking specifically about the Facebook page you had, as opposed to the website, which has right. all of your writing on it. So let's just make that distinction up front. People can still visit your uh, your website, Food and Farm Discussion Lab, um, which contains all the, a lot of the articles. And you are one prolific dude, man. You write a lot of articles. Um, I'm very impressed because I hate to write. <laughs> but tell yeah, us about it's the... been a slow summer, but I'm cranking it back up again this week. Oh yeah, so I didn't think it looked slow at all. If I, it looked to me like you were writing something new about every three days, but I, I, I could be wrong. I was just so dazzled by the um, by the array of topics that you cover. But um, tell us, talk a little bit about the Facebook Let's page. Talk about the forum, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the forum. The bad news is I shut it down a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, And the good news is we're planning on uh, opening back up for business tomorrow. 
Oh, no kidding. So what, yeah. what happened? What, what caused, I mean, because you said in your post on the, on the page, like you had been thinking about doing it for a while and that the political climate had become so polarized that it was difficult to moderate. I mean, or at least that was the, the sort of subtext that I um, understood from your post. Is that, is that really what happened? It was just the polarization of people's comments? Yeah, well, 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 let me back up a bit and give people a little bit of background. I mean, the idea behind the forum was I went looking around for a place to discuss, you know, the wide range of food system issues, whether it's sustainable farming, public health, nutrition, you know, the obesity epidemic, food security, food waste, et cetera. And I just couldn't find a place that uh, had the kind of rigor and respectful dialogue that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I set something up with a set of rules that you know, are organized along the lines of uh, scientific skepticism. People are expected to back up their claims, provide sources. Right. That's kind of a bedrock principle, first and foremost. And keep the you know, we really focused on uh, trying to keep the dialogue respectful. Yes. Um, originally, the the forum had uh, was a lot of um, Midwestern conventional farmers, and if you're talking about farming, that's what most farming is, yes. right? Um, and then, as we, you know, my vision was always to grow it into the biggest, widest Big Ten possible. Mm-hmm. So more organic farmers, organic advocates, urban consumers. But as you do that, you had bigger risks. We had a lot of red state, blue state. We had animal rights activists and uh, livestock CAFO owners and, you know, organic, conventional. And two big problems. One is, you know, um, online dialogue is kind of a new modality that we're figuring out. Mm -hmm. And emotional intelligence is difficult when you take away body language, eye contact, all that, right? Yes. Um, So we're learning that and developing that. And then having conversations between people who don't share assumptions Mm. is very difficult. Um, If you don't have some shared, you know, baseline of assumptions. And uh, as the tank gets bigger, those problems grow. Mm. So I could see with the election, um, when Trump came in, the normal red state, blue state tensions were just going to crank up. And I wasn't really sure how to manage that. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things we always push for in political discussions is make it as specific as possible. So zoom in to a specific policy and don't let it, you know, metastasize into, you know, communism versus capitalism or, you know, Uh um, because, you know, it gets back to shared assumptions. So we're going to discuss the uh, waters of the United States Act or mm-hmm. the impact of raising the minimum wage. It's best to just keep getting specific of, like, let's look at the evidence on this. Narrow, Keep the issue as narrow as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and But recently, issues of race, you know, in the food system was something that was just a very difficult subject that, in terms of, like, the medium wasn't well-suited to it in that it's stressing the limitations of the group and the medium. Mm-hmm. 
But it also, you know, after Charlottesville, it felt to me dishonest to keep avoiding it. Right. Um, How interesting, Mark. I mean, that that, that, you know, and I don't mean to discount the issues of raise around food and food security, food justice and so on, but like that 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 would become sort of the the breaking point for um, keeping the dialogue going and also keeping it civil. Is that what you're saying? Is that 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 started to break down? Yeah. Over yeah. those issues. And we had a couple. We had, I decided to go in and just like take the issue head on. And we did a great discussion. Um, there was a very difficult uh discussion that kicked off with the story of um, this uh, African-American farmer local to Charlottesville Mm -hmm. who did a post on Facebook about how uh, he was less concerned with um, people, you know, defending Confederate monuments than with uh, the liberal um, neighbors in his affluent community who would uh, call the police if they, when he was trying to uh, deliver, he did kind of door-to-door deliveries in affluent neighborhoods and would find, you know, he'd be pulled over by the police for I saw that post. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I saw that post. Like Very that. interesting. So that yeah. seemed like a good entry point, and it was. And then we had a couple other posts where people do just were like, why are we talking about race? You know, like, let's get back to, you know, Tillage and pesticides and right GMO you know, and yeah and yeah and the, the thing is is that if the group I thought if the group's going to include more urban consumers and different you know then we have to discuss what they want to discuss uh-huh. and we got you know and and but it also became clear to me that. It's really hard to moderate for tone. Yes. Um, and I was a bit burnt out, and I just, like, this has just become untenable. You know, every, whether it's uh, discussions about climate change or uh, the environmental impact of meat, like, every thread is becoming more and more contentious and feeling like, you know, we're at this breaking point. And it's, I'm not getting paid enough because I'm not getting paid (laughs) anything, you know, to to babysit this thing. You know, it's it's unpredictable. Like, you know, if I, the reason why it was such a valuable forum was because of the rigor and the vibrancy, you know. Um, oh, yeah. You had some took, wonderful people took, posting. I mean, it was I learned so much. There were so many great yeah. articles and threads to follow. It was a really valuable for people who are students of agriculture in the United States and around the world. It was a yeah. really, I thought, a very powerful uh, forum. And I, I was that's why I was so sad and why I reached out to you when you shut it down. I was like, oh, my God, you know, what happened here? Because you did hear so many different voices. And it was so interesting uh, to see all of those. Why, different voices. That's why I'm bringing it back. It yeah. just kind of blew such a hole in the ecosystem of mm. the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes work. And yes, the, I'm sure. it's not uh, pretty like you know, there are days when, you know, I check in a couple times a day, and if I'm not contributing, I'm just keeping an eye on it. And maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes of work a day, but there can be days where, it, like, it just takes over my day wow. to make keep it on track. Um, yes, and you're very fierce. 
You're it a very me, fierce moderator, you know? man. Like I got slapped out a couple times for being off yeah. topic or not particularly useful or <laughs> Yeah. Even my but friend Tom it. Philpot took heat from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, let's talk a bit about some of the most prevalent topics because I don't I don't want to you know I don't want to yeah sort of ex- exhaustively describe why this didn't or did or did not work for you but um but what what did you see I mean as somebody who moderated first of all how many years was this going on it was about three years was that is three that right? and a half years three and a half years yeah and what were the topics what were the sort of key topics that you saw coming up again and again in the constituency there right so. The topics that I was most interested in and pushed, um, we we were mostly around conservation agriculture, mm-hmm. um, and soil health, um, food waste, uh, overfishing, and that. Like again, it took me three years to develop, you know, a small contingent of people who were interested in fishery issues like I am. Um, And then, uh, you know, food security issues, SNAP, those are things that are important to me. Uh, The things, the boilerplate things that just come up over and over were, and because it's where the culture war is, is uh, genetic engineering and organic marketing um, are the two hobby horses. And to be honest, I got frustrated that, you know, there are days it felt like people wanting to complain about the excesses of organic marketing uh, you know, be like three times a day. It's like, do we really need to discuss this again? Um, well, I, I felt like the GMO, you know, the, the genetic engineering uh, topic was like pretty much what I saw the most of. And I, I admit I did not check in with the forum every single day, but that seemed to be a thread that turned up again and again. And and to my surprise, it was a thread that was wholeheartedly, in other words, genetic engineering was wholeheartedly supported by a large number of your commentators, which I thought was a really interesting thing. But as you pointed out at the top of the show, most of the farming that happens in the United States is conventional farming and genetic engineering, you, you know, has been heavily sold uh, to that population. And even you seem to be a big fan of genetic engineering. Um, dis- I mean, also, well, we also have of academics. I mean, it's, it's supported, you know, mm. the consensus on the safety and efficacy of genetic engineering. Most crops is, is, is stronger among scientists than it is for climate change. Mm. And the gap is the biggest where of the general public is more dubious about um, genetic engineering than they are about climate change. But scientists are are much more, the consensus is stronger because it's the question and the the data, it's a much cleaner, easier to answer question than climate change. I don't know. I think climate change, especially in the wake of the last few weeks, (laughs) I think it's kind of... I think pretty much everybody has to acknowledge that something is happening that we don't like. Um, But as far as the genetic engineering, I personally don't have an issue with genetic engineering. Uh, I think what is what is wrong with genetic engineering is that the power of, uh, you know, ownership of the particular seeds uh, has, has been concentrated into too few hands. And for me, that is the real argument against GMO crops, um, that there's not enough widespread ownership of the technology and that, um, you know, just uh, there's, I, I feel like there's a lot of exploitation involved in, um, you know, telling farmers that they can't propagate their own seeds, that they can't uh, retain seeds, that they have to buy new seeds every year, that kind of stuff, I think is is really not uh, the direction that we should be going in. But the technology itself, I don't see a problem with. Um, and I, I suppose that's what you're saying, ultimately, right? Well, I would say that's a good argument for stronger antitrust. Yeah. Enforcement. Um, farmers, by and large, don't feel they don't. I mean, for starters, like in corn, you've got to buy new seed every year because it's all hybrid. Right. So the 
intellectual property, the the technology agreement is kind of a moot point. In soybeans, um, most farmers, whether it was genetically engineered or not, most farmers are going to buy fresh seed every year because they don't find seed saving economical unless it's for like a um, a late, they try to do a double planting late in the season where, you know, the you want to keep your, you want to manage risk so you want to get your seed costs as low as possible because you're, you know, the potential on return for that second crop is fairly low. Um, what about the issues around the, the herbicides, glyphosate specifically? Um, because that's that's about to blow up. I mean, there's that big class action suit in California against Monsanto for, uh, not. I think it's non-Hodgkin's leukemia people are suing about. Yeah. Over a thousand people are involved in that. Um, and then there, you know, there's, there are many studies that show... Um, Breast and prostate cancer uh, incidence is higher uh, amongst populations that are uh, heavily exposed. And then there's this big new book coming out by Carrie Gillum, who's been following uh, Roundup Ready crops for, what, 15, 16 years. Um, She's about to come out with whitewash. uh, And that shows uh, collusion with the EPA between the EPA and Monsanto and giving it a pass on uh, a lot of the safety testing. Um, Why is your population so cavalier about... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not asking this in a combative way. I'm just curious. Right. Uh, why is that population so cavalier about these studies, which they um, they dismiss? Uh, in fact, I noticed a lot of um, a lot of really uh, very um, really quite negative. You know, the, the people who who don't like uh, GMO crops and and glyphosate are, are, are referred to as advocates. Uh, that they are ironic. Let's see, what is it? Ironically, the same correlation exists between the rise of social media and the rise of stupidity in the general population. People read junk like this, referring to the, an article that shows the correlation between breast and prostate cancers and glyphosate. Uh, people read junk like this instead of becoming scientifically literate. Another person says, uh, I guess that agriculture bashing news articles are more dramatic when they mention Monsanto and imply that it is evil. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was really surprised, actually. I mean, you talk about moderating for tone. Um, right. I, I, you know, I could see why you had a problem <laughs> because even in the guise of being sort of temperate, um, there was a lot of pushback, uh, against what to me has been perfectly legitimate scientific inquiry into, uh, the negative impacts of something like, um, glyphosate use or even genetically modified organisms where you where you have seed drift and you have companies suing organic farmers because their seed drift went into their fields and they got hybridized and you know stuff like that i mean i think those are legitimate issues that should be dealt with and i was surprised that there was so much pushback in your cohort and i wondered if you could dis- discuss that a little bit well it's first to distinguish between me like my cohort is i'm a environmentalist, eco-modernist, left social democrat. I'm not a <laughs> uh, conservative right. corn and soy farmer. Um, and there, we have some overlap and some disagreement on these issues. I, it's a tough, tough subject to tackle in this format. Um because I haven't seen, I've seen this stuff on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I haven't seen anything solid on uh, breast or prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. The evidence on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is really weak. Um, and that's the one that was the strong, it was the only, when the IARC did their assessment, it was the only one they uh saw a correlation with, but the correlation is really weak. It, the, the, um, I mean, two of the main studies they leaned on were case control studies, which are not particularly great, um, you know, form of evidence. Mm-hmm. And in those two, the first one, the DeRus 2003, and out of, of 
all the the cases they looked at, they had it was ninety seven cases of people who were uh, within the study group. Only ninety seven people in that study had been exposed to glyphosate. It's three point eight percent of the cohort they were looking at. And then in Erickson two thousand eight, it's forty seven individuals who've been exposed to glyphosate. Mm. So to draw conclusions from, you know, a, a data set of 97 people or 47 people, that's not that strong of evidence. Yeah, I would agree and with that. The ruse followed up in 2005 where they, with a stronger, um, you know, study design, they looked instead at... Uh, 54,000 agricultural workers from the agriculture, the data set of the agricultural uh, health study, and they found a negative correlation. And so, and then, I don't know if you saw in June, Reuters reported that um, Aaron, what's his name? Aaron Blair? Yeah, Aaron Blair, who chaired the IAR study, or the IRA study. IARC. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, he was an epidemiologist for the uh, National Cancer Institute, and it came out in the court records for the, the California case you're talking about that he had been a the head researcher on a big study, a very strong study uh, that hadn't been published yet. It was a big data set that he made a decision not to publish ahead of the IRAC report. And that paper, that study, also showed a negative. They showed no correlation. And most people who looked at it said if that had been included, um, it would have tipped the decision in the other way. Hmm. It would have tipped the assessment in the other way. And, and there's some, like, they don't include, for good reason, as a rule of thumb, unpublished data. But they're also a group who are capable of, if they wanted to, conducting their own peer review. They're, they're all, the people on that board, right, are capable of looking at this data set, right, and assessing whether they should weigh it or not. Um, so, you know, I, I the, the evidence on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that I've looked at is weak. And remember that the, IR, the IARC was a hazard assessment and not a risk assessment. So all they were saying was that at a certain dosage, it's a probable. We don't know what the dosage is, Mm -hmm. but we don't see risk in real world. You know, there's. we're not talking about real world uh, exposures. We're just saying at a certain point of exposure, it's it's a probable carcinogen. Mm -hmm. So that also got misconstrued in the popular press. And that's part of what uh, farmers are are tired of. They're tracking this stuff much more carefully for obvious reasons, because it matters to them if real-world exposures in a work setting, which are, you know, like the residue levels for consumers are, you know, trivial. Except no, we, they, I mean, I'm seeing articles that say that every man, woman, and child in this country has glyphosate in their bodies now, in their in their bloodstream. I don't know whether that's true or not, Mark, but I'm just saying. Like, I, I mean, I have to. Uh, so I that's have certainly to, true, but that doesn't mean it's. But it doesn't mean I want that either, right? I mean, in a way, I'm looking at what you're saying, and I'm thinking to myself, well, in a, you're you're sort of suggesting that there's some kind of weird conspiracy theory amongst consumers and um, and quote unquote advocates uh, that there's something wrong with this technology that's really just geared towards I don't know reducing the share price of Monsanto. And I I I have to say I don't I don't buy into conspiracy theories in that sense. I don't see it, and I feel like there must be. I mean, I know. 
know the Seralini uh, study was discounted because of bad data, um, because of the way that the, the study was was uh, was control or you know set up, and, and I'm sure that's there true of no other ones. There no were no controls. Statistical power. But uh, but the thing is, is that people are not just making this up out of whole cloth, or is that what you're suggesting? And that I mean, I do get no, it. The I'm farmers are it's definitely not a more conspiracy in, theory. It's I would say motivated reasoning and cherry picking. Mm-hmm. Along, I mean, there's a combination of, for consumers, there's just a, you know, understandable fears of, exp- you know, and I tell, I write about the chemical hangover. We did, we went through a legitimate period from, you know, the 50s into the 70s right. of, I would say, industrial chemical overreach, and it caused a lot of problems um, and legitimate problems. And But I'm not saying there's no risk anymore, but those risks have been greatly mitigated. Um, and there's you have to disaggregate some things in terms of what consumers feel a visceral fear of and what are legitimate fears. I'm mm-hmm. not saying, like, sure. are grounded fears, you know, fears that are supported by, you know, risks that are supported by science versus, you know, we're all more scared of shark attacks than slipping in the shower. Right, yeah, right of course. But, yes, that's a very good example. I don't know. I just I, I I don't want to dwell too long on this, but I, I you know there right. there are other problems with with the use of glyphosate and with Roundup Ready crops for you know the fact that we have to use more and more glyphosate, the fact that uh, you know there's they're they're adding two four D and other dicamba and other co- chemicals that are more hazardous, and actually that leads me to my next question, which is, given that glyphosate is among the most benign of these chemicals that we put on our food crops, um, right. what what are the answers? In in the absence of something like glyphosate, what are the what are the answers that you think might happen, um, you know, going forward, given the the public um, perception of, of uh, chemical overuse in, in food agriculture? Right. So let's back up. There's one point of like one of the things the food dialogue suffers from is a lack of counterfactual thinking. Yes. So let's go back 20 years, back to 1996, and ban, you know, we're not going to let Roundup Ready crops on the market. So what happens? You have greater pressure. What glyphosate did was take the pressure off of mostly atrazine, but like you said, 2,4-D, dicamba, you know, Alkalor, meta-alkalor, um, cyanazine was a really uh, nasty herbicide that was taken off the market. It was phased out and banned. Uh-huh. And it's really hard, you know, the political pressure to take a use, like something that farmers find useful, off the market's hard. So one of the things I would say glyphosate did was it made it easier to, you know, take some of the really nasty things off the market because there was less, there was no political law, no, there was no lobby to save cyanazine, right. which is <laughs> atrazine and cyanide. Yikes. So it's like, um, so the atrazine and the AC, AC case, the ALS inhibitors, those types of herbicides actually are much more prone to uh, weed resistance than glyphosate. And the, the rate of new weed resistance cases actually declines starting in 95, from 13 new species a year to 11 huh. new species a year since. So what here's what goes back to your other question is in the absence of Roundup Ready crops, you would have much greater herbicide resistance problems. The big difference is that 
only the farm press and a handful of you only hear of it if you are subscribed to you know of the environmental working group and the NRDC's email newsletter uh-huh. the New York Times wouldn't be reporting on it because it's the genetic engineering has politicized glyphosate yes. and that's where it's not a conspiracy theory although there is there are definitely activist groups who are just opposed to industrial agriculture and are looking for wedge issues. And glyphosate is the new wedge issue, I would say. Um, So, okay, going forward, everything's a trade-off. There's no free lunch. So to take the pressure off of glyphosate, there's going to be, you know, uh, integrated pest management more, hopefully, is what we want to see. Right. And um, for herbicides, that means using a range of um, herbicides. And, and unfortunately, that's going to mean using some things that are a little nastier than glyphosate in order to maintain the efficacy of glyphosate. Um, It's going to mean more tillage, which is even a greater, I would say. I'm more concerned about the environmental impact of tillage than I am about the environmental impacts of herbicides. I mean, because you're talking about soil erosion, uh, eutrophication, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Right, right. um, Which are, you know, compared to relatively safe, relatively, you know, here's one of the things we do. I'm going to do a page I'll publish later today of notes for my conversation with you with sources. And, you know, if you want to put them in your show notes, people can uh, see. We do, uh, we have a wiki, a research wiki. I don't know if you ever stumbled across it, but where we uh, gather all the kind of, mostly systematic, the literature reviews and meta-analyses, the kind of higher forms of broader uh, research on a given mostly contentious topics. So if you look at the research literature on glyphosate versus the research literature on the insecticide chlorpyrifos, uh-huh. it's like night and day. And this, I'd really like people to look at what the research literature on a relatively safe, benign pesticide looks like versus one that's actually presents real risks. Like chlorpyrifos. Right. Right. Um, and I'll link to both of those collections. That would be great. Thank um, you. So, you know, what... Roundup ready crops enabled no-till or uh, conservation tillage on something like sixty or eighty thousand. I mean, sixty or eighty million, million. acres right. of cropland. There's five million acres or two and a half million acres of organic crops. Wow. <laughs> 80 million acres that puts it in of reduced yeah. environmental impacts, right, on 80 million acres of, like, one of the most environmentally impactful changes you can make, which is moving to no-till or conservation tillage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one estimate I saw, it's like the equivalent of taking, of like, 10 million cars off the road every year. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've seen In that. Terms I've of, seen that statistically. Of, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Right, and carbon so, and uh, carbon storage or whatever it is, carbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's that the, the hardest thing is that people have to understand that everything is a trade-off. Yeah. There's no 
magic bullet or free lunch. Like if you, it's a, you know, you squeeze the balloon. <laughs> if, if you want to reduce, I mean, weeds are the number one challenge for farmers and they suck resources. So there's nothing sustainable about letting pigweed use your, eat up all your fertilizer, right? Yeah. Or your water. If it's an irrigated field and the weeds are drinking the water and you uh, apply uh, fertilizer, that's both the fuel and the factor for the past over, say, 5,000 acres and all the energy to create the fertilizer, the manure, and ship the manure. Um, So there's nothing sustainable about letting weeds soak up those resources. Right. I don't think Um, anybody would dispute that. So you have to control the weeds. So you can control weeds with either tillage or herbicides or, I mean, there's some, uh, and then cover crops. Right. And uh, there's some marginal benefits. There's, I think, important benefits to more diverse crop rotations. But in terms of weed control, I think it's pretty marginal. Cover crops help. Um, you know, one of the things I'd, I'd like to see in the farm bill, there's some uh, small program uh to subsidize adoption of cover crops, I think they'll pay you uh, twenty to forty bucks an acre for your first three years if you're uh, adopting cover crops. And that's, there's a lot of bright spots people don't realize. I was just looking at the cover crops this morning. Um, 2017, Iowa farmers planted. 600,000 acres of cover crops, and uh, 350,000 of those were subsidized by that program, which was an 18% increase over 2016, Mm -hmm. and 2016 was a 22% increase over 2015, which if you're, you know, keeping track of compounding interest, (laughs) you know, that matters. Yes. You know, um, so things are, there's a lot going on. Um, I don't think farmers are getting enough credit for it. Some of it's happening late, but um, no-till is, I looked at 2012 was the most recent numbers I could get my hands on. Two hundred eighty thousand farms, ninety-six million acres, a conservation tillage on two hundred thousand farms on seventy-six million acres. Uh-huh. I think that's a you know that's significant for sure, absolutely. Yeah, and a shift, and, and a shift, uh, definitely yes. a big shift. Although well, I will say, in my local to forty years ago, oh, compared huge. to probably fifteen years ago, come on. Yeah. Right. I mean, really, because I mean, to yeah. me, I've been doing this program for almost a decade now. And for me, uh, just the idea of no till is uh, something that I'm hearing more and more only in the last really two and a half, three years. Um, you know, so right. if, I, if I look back to the beginning of this show, which I mean, admittedly, in the beginning, I wasn't so focused on agriculture, but um, but that, you know, people were not talking about that. They were not talking about changing up agricultural methods. They were not talking about uh, cover crops quite so um, right. enthusiastically, shall we say. But the shift in no-till adoption starts in 96 with Roundup Ready, yeah. because you can do one pass, um, well, you, you can... It's just much easier to control weeds sure. without tillage if you right. can uh, do one or two passes with glyphosate while you're while it, you don't have to do pre-emergent um, triage, as it were, right? Pre-emergent so you're control. Not, you're not tilling before, before the weeds, the weeds start right. and after the weeds sprout. Right. And no-till is easier if you can do it after the weeds sprout. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Because um, other herbicides are are uh, pre-emergent. A right. lot of them. 
Right. Well, we have to unfortunately wrap it up here. Um, can you tell people where they can read more? I mean, first of all, they can go on Facebook, I guess, in a few days yeah. um, uh, to to join the forum if they, I guess, if they wish. Uh, but they more importantly can go to the website and read all the of the many, many articles. Is fafdl dot org short for Food and Farm Discussion Lab, fafdl dot org, and I am on Twitter at eatcookwrite. Right. And so you're going to be tweeting about this program, I know. I sure will. Mark, thank you um, so much for joining me. Uh, thanks to my sponsor, Bob's Red Mill, without whom we would be literally nothing here at Heritage Radio. Oh, right? let me give a shout out to Bob's Red Mill. Yeah. If people want to support sustainable agriculture, so much is a demand side issue. If you want more diverse rotations, you can't chide farmers unless you eat more diverse rotation. Thank you. So Bob's Red Mill 13 bean soup and 10 grain hot cereal are the easiest way to support diverse rotation. Beautiful. Thank you. Shout out to my neighbors in Oregon. (laughs) We could not possibly do this, uh, do our jobs here at Heritage without Bob's Red Mill. And, um, and frankly, I'm a big proponent. I do a lot of cooking and I use a lot of their products as well, just, just because they're great, even before they started sponsoring us. So thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. I hope you'll come back. This is a really interesting discussion. Um, and there's much, much more to unpack. And I look forward to seeing the forum go back up on the, on Facebook. Thanks for doing that. My pleasure. Thanks a bunch. Good to be with you. Okay. Take care. And until next week, folks, we have more great programming coming up. So do tune in every Monday at 12 o'clock. And I will continue to to probe the the dark interstices of uh, food, agriculture, and food policy. Thanks for listening today. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.